Welcome back to this fourth episode of the Ballots and Bullets podcast. Listen to this. It is the scratchy, hard-to-hear police radio from the night of July 23, 1968. All those broadcasts were recorded, and you can hear at the start of the shootout. If you listen closely, the tow truck driver yell, Tow truck in trouble, they're shooting, and then, hurry up, step on it. In our last segment, we took you to the weeks leading up to July 23rd as Fred Ahmed Evans and his group began to purchase rifles and shotguns with money from the anti-poverty program Mayor Stokes had set up called Cleveland Now. Today, We'll explore the events leading up to the first shots and the chaos that ensued. Two fundamental questions present themselves. Could this disaster have been avoided? And who shot first? I'm WKYC producer Chris Cantorgiani. And I'm Jim Robinault, author of Ballots and Bullets. And this is episode four, which we have entitled The Battle. Well, why don't we start off with the informant, because that's how we know a lot about what happened. Yeah, this is a good point to talk a little bit more in detail about J. Edgar Hoover's COINTEL program. We talked about this in an earlier episode, but Hoover had created um, this whole idea of going after the black nationalists as a hate group. And he charged uh, you know, agents across the country with the task of, of following and keeping up with what the black nationalists were doing. In order to do this, one of the main things that the FBI agents in every town, including here in Cleveland, did was to get informants, to go out and recruit people to be informants. And it was a process. They would first talk with them. They would offer them money. They would try to figure out whether they were reliable. It was a process. You didn't just become an informant overnight. Um, but once you were an informant, then you were paid to keep, uh, keep the uh, FBI advised. And as I said... There's somebody deep in Ahmed Evans' group uh, who was an informant because as we get into this shootout, there is a almost hourly report by an informant about what's going on and what's about to happen. This information, by the way, went to the FBI and then was immediately communicated to the subversives unit in the Cleveland Police Department. But not all of it. Not right? all of it. <clears throat> but, but they still knew what was coming. And um, that's that John, Sergeant John Ungvary, and he'll play a part in what we're going to talk about. But let me give you a feel for this, and the readers a feel for this. This is a memo that is <clears throat> from the FBI files that I found that really have never been looked at before, recently declassified by the FBI, and these, these are in the National Archives. Here, and they, by the way, they, they uh, redact the name of the source, so I can't tell you who the source was from this Redaction, but I have an idea. <laughs> anyway, it says the source essentially spent most of the morning and afternoon of July 22, 1968, day before the shootout, at 13312 Auburndale Road, Cleveland, which was the residence of Fred Ahmed Evans and some of his followers in the New Libya organization. Source related that while no organized meetings were held during this period, it was obvious from general conversation with Evans and others at the residence that they were planning to create trouble in the immediate future. Source advised that no indication was given as to the details of the trouble. 
Source observes several of the, and this is in quotes, brothers bringing weapons and ammunition to the Auburndale residents during the afternoon and evening of July 22, 1968. Source stated that he personally observed eight weapons in the apartment where Evans lived, and he was certain that there were additional weapons and equipment in the other parts of the building. That's the kind of detail they had, and this guy would later play a really big role in kind of saying, look, it's it's not only coming soon, it's coming almost right away. And so we get into him helping us understand exactly what was going on. The same source details a, a, the drive to Detroit. Uh, tell me about that. So what happens is um, the eviction notice for Evans is delivered. Uh, and it's not clear to me exactly what day it was delivered. They say the 21st, but that's a Sunday. That seems mm. an odd day yeah. for an official to be doing that. Nevertheless, um, an eviction notice to get them out of the Auburndale apartments is delivered. That starts a three-day period where they have to get out or they will be forcibly removed. And so the 24th is the day that they think the person's going to come back to forcibly remove them. The plan that is created that's confirmed in multiple sources is when the person comes to evict them, they will shoot that person. And then when the police come to respond, they will start shooting police. This will kick off a battle not only in Cleveland, but in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Chicago and potentially New York. It was really supposed to start almost a national uprising. Terrifying. It is terrifying. Um, And so what happens is uh, they're getting these reports through this informant uh, about what's happening. So the next day, the 23rd, uh, which is a Tuesday, the day of the shootout, which will happen, start at 8.23 that night. Um, what what happens is the informant says, essentially, the night before, that Evans, late at night, and by the way, they're, they're smoking marijuana, they're drinking wine, they've got this car that they bought with Cleveland Now money, He says that Evans has this plan to go to Detroit to make sure that the brothers in Detroit know that it's about to kick off and to get some weapons. Uh, And they literally start driving, you know, about 9 o'clock at night. And they drive up to Detroit where they do meet with people up there. And Evans comes out and says they're with us, you know, when we start this. They drive all the way back to Cleveland. Then they go to Pittsburgh that same night. night. Uh, The people they were supposed to meet weren't there, so they go back and they stop it in Akron and pick up some checks or something like that, then come back to Cleveland the next morning. This is the morning of the 23rd. All during that time, the informant is calling the FBI. He'll walk away to a payphone and call the, his his report. That's at gutsy. The FBI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really is gutsy, um, but he's trying to tell him that it's about to happen. And the report is that it's going to happen on the morning of the 24th with this eviction. Right. So during that day, Evans goes out and begins buying more weapons. In fact, he goes to a, a gun shop in um, East Cleveland and literally buys four or five more rifles. This is all with Cleveland Now money. And uh, almost buys them out of ammunition. And the thing that amazes me about it is they're buying not just regular ammunition, but armor-piercing bullets. Um, and phosphorus bullets, you know, that you can see at night, that sort of thing. And they buy, you know, these huge rounds. 
And what is amazing is the guy who owns that shop, who later testified, didn't call any authorities and say, this is going on. It wasn't illegal to own weapons. Right. Sababa Akili mentions that at the same time, H. Rap Brown would hop on a plane with a shotgun. Right. And just check it in his overhead luggage, you know, that you could fly on a plane with a gun at this time. Yeah. It's crazy. So anyway, they he comes back, and then here's the problem. It's supposed to kick off the next morning, but on the other side of the ledger, uh, the FBI knows about this from the informant about what's coming. They report to the Cleveland police, and they start sending up flares at City Hall. Well, what's going on at City Hall at this time? So <clears throat> this is another fateful moment in the story. Um, Carl Stokes actually um, is out of town. He had left the day before on the 22nd, which was a Monday, to fly to Washington, D.C. to participate with three other national mayors of big northern cities, Literally, and the irony is, you know, it knows many it knows many deaths in this story. <laughs> yes. Um, the irony is they're talking about, is the big city dying? Um, and so Stokes is there to speak on that on the morning of the 2030s in Washington, D.C. In other words, he's out of town when everything comes to a head and a decision has to be made about what to do. Because he's out of town, the guy who is the law director automatically becomes the acting mayor. And he's a guy named Buddy James, young African-American guy who'd only been practiced law about six years, very inexperienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a, the mayor also has an executive assistant named John Little, also a very young guy who was a former Baker Hostetler lawyer. Okay. Um, but uh, he's a white guy. And so he and James hear from the police who come over and say, you know, this is going on. And they, what are we going to do? So they call in the safety director, who is a guy named Joe McManaman, who later will become a judge, and um, his wife will also become a judge. But Joe is one of these guys who had been a policeman, went to law school. Stokes picks him. He's West Side Irish because he supported Stokes. Stokes selects him to be um, his safety director, which is a bit controversial considering he's not African-American and, you know, the, the police are the big issue. On the other hand, it makes some sense because – he thinks that this is a guy who will not be as challenging to the police, who he knows he has to worry about. So uh, he picks McMahon comes in and um, begins to speak with uh, with everyone. They don't know what to do. They kind of look to him as the guy who has the law enforcement background, and he's the safety director. The call is ultimately for the law director, who's the acting mayor. And the answer is, he says, well, it's just there's no uh, problem with somebody building up guns. We don't have reason to go arrest them. We don't have reason to uh, have a search warrant. This, by the way, drives Sergeant Ungvary bananas, <sighs> sure. as it does the FBI. Right. They think they have plenty of evidence to go um, to go in and, and at least do a search warrant, let alone arrest, arrest people. They know there are these threats out there. It's not just somebody owning money or owning guns. They're stockpiling. They're stockpiling, yeah. and they, they're saying they're about to kick off. So this um, is mid-afternoon. Yeah, this is around two in the afternoon. Okay, and um, that's the fateful decision, frankly, because um, there was a way to stop this before it got started. the The second fateful decision that is made is they decide, well, what do we do? And so uh, the safety director says, why don't you put stakeout people, police cars, unmarked, driving through the neighborhood? 
to keep an eye on what's going on. And if Ahmed comes out, to follow his car and eventually follow him wherever he goes. Um, they had heard that the informant said they'd been driving all night long, you know, and they said, that guy can't be telling us the truth. It didn't seem possible. <clears throat> didn't yeah. seem possible. And, in fact, it's what happened. Um, they just weren't, you know, they weren't believing it. So let's do a stakeout. Then the question is, you know, why did that stakeout become a stationary stakeout with uh, two cars? Instead of a roving stakeout. Yeah. These are two cars full of white males yeah. in an area that they look like they don't belong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stick out like a sore thumb. They have binoculars. They have shotguns. They're sitting in cars that are unmarked. Almost but Keystone Cop-like, really. Almost. Yeah. And somehow the directive to have a roving surveillance turned into a stationary surveillance. And there are a lot of people that have written that think that that was kind of a passive-aggressive move by somebody up the chain in the police department who really wanted this shootout to get going mm. and therefore provoked it with this stationary um, mm. uh, stakeout. True or not, it's hard to tell, but um, it's clear that the directive was not to do that and that eventually they did do that. So they've got these guys sitting on each side of the house, clearly visible to the house, and Ahmed Evans comes back to the house and it tells everybody in the house that the police are out there. And when one of these young guys who's a witness to all this gives the police a statement, he says, uh, the day of the notice, all the brothers sat down together and they talked about the thing over. And Ahmed Evans was there and he said that, quote, he was tired of this and he wasn't going any further. Uh, we gave up the shop on Superior, his, you know, his um, uh, astrology shop, and wasn't going to give up. So... Uh, this was the moment that they were going to stand their ground. But more than that, they were worried that they were going to be attacked. And they were worried about the very thing that was happening, which is somebody in their group was a Judas, and the police were going to attack them preemptively. And that's what causes them to send out somebody to stand in front of the apartments, kneel down, point his rifle towards the policeman, and try to scare them away, and then they all came out. Now, other than the police surveilling, did City Hall send anyone as an emissary to try to talk them out of it? Yeah, this is kind of an important part of the story because um, one of the participants, Walter Beach, was able to give me his own recollection. He's still alive. Walter Beach was on the Browns that won the 64 championship. African-American, he was a cornerback who shut down Johnny Unitas in that championship. Uh, but he was a black nationalist. And I wrote a lot about him in, in the book. He was a big source. He had been hired by Stokes to be a liaison to the black nationalists. He went to pool halls. He hung out. Take the temperature of what's going on. And he was part of the, guy, part of the process of giving out the um, Cleveland Now money. Oh, right, right. So... He, he is called down to City Hall because Stokes is out of town. Stokes, I think, says get Walter to come down and George Forbes, who then was a very young councilman from Glenville. So they both come down. They both listen to the story. They both said they don't know anything about this. They haven't heard any word on the street. Frankly, neither one of them would have um, uh, because they weren't in the militant group. Uh, they were friendly to him, but not But they weren't, they weren't militants, yeah. either one of them. Um, but so they agree to get in Walter's car and drive out 
to see Ahmed to see if they can um, kind of cool this whole thing down. They stop at the Afro set. Harlow Jones is not there, but they pick up another guy um, who gets in the car with them and they drive out. And when they get there, Ahmed's in the back um, yard with a bandolier with a shotgun ready to go with a bunch of guys milling about around him with guns. They're all upset because of this eviction and they're all upset because they think they're about to be attacked by the police because the police are parked outside with binoculars right. staring at them right yeah. so Walter and um, uh, George listen to Ahmed and then they decide um, that they will go downtown and try to get the eviction notice taken care of and they both t- say later they thought Ahmed wanted out of it at this point he had stoked everybody up, but he really didn't want to go through with it. That's was, that was their take. Hmm. True or not, that was their take. They said, look, we'll go take care of this eviction. You be cool. And they get in their car to leave. As they're going past one of the stakeout cars, the guy in the back seat takes down their license number. You know, And Forbes thinks for a minute about stopping and doesn't because he doesn't know these guys. They're not the beat, they're the beat cops. Um, so... Um, the last thing that Ahmed Evans says to George Forbes is, tell the big brother downtown everything's going to be okay. Oh. And it was not long after that that they all then branched out into the neighborhood, drove away the, the stakeout cars, and then the shooting started. And the question is, how and why? <laughs> how and why? Who yeah. shot first? Right. An answer we may never know. No. Actually. What we do know is that there's a huge mystery here of the fact that the first police to respond to the Arvindale apartment show up, uh, Kenny Gibbons and his partner, Willard Wolf. They come screaming up. They are reacting to somebody telling them that a tow truck has been shot at, and we'll come back to that in a second. But when they get there, there is a a white male um, in plain clothes with a revolver, uh, six foot four, blonde crew cut, standing in front of the Arbondale apartments. So this is after that group had gone out and spread Burst out. out the doors out. And he's got one guy on the ground, an African-American male on the ground, and he motions them over, and and they come over. They both start to walk over. Kenny Gibbons walks up to him, and, and he says, you know, I'm going to go get a car to take this guy away. You guys hold him here. And then he runs off. And Gibbons, for, at that moment, thinks... Why is he running off? We just came with a car. Yeah, we, we got, got a, a car right here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the guy runs away. And at that moment, he Kenny Gibbons feels a tap on his stomach, and he puts his hand down, and it's covered with blood. He'd been shot with a high-powered rifle. Uh, and he turns to start to run away and is shot seven more times. He can't remember any of it. He can't remember the sound of the shots. But he, he runs around the corner, barely able to move, and another officer had just arrived who picked him up and took him to the hospital. Jerry Viola. Who, who he's, yeah, and he survives. But un- unfortunately, his partner, Willard Wolf, who was walking in front of the, in front of the, whole, um, the house, gets shot right between the eyes with a high-powered rifle uh, and is killed instantly. So he's the first uh, police death. Willard Wolf dies there. One of the things that we that I write about is Wolf had a very high alcohol blood alcohol rate, um, 0.20 or 0.25 somewhere in that vicinity. That when he was autopsied, they found he had that's like 13 beers or 13 shots. Oh, we. 
it's a huge problem because of the three policemen who were killed that day, two of them had very high blood alcohol content. Uh, we can come back to that later. Yes. But uh, not to say anything about why they were killed or what happened other than maybe Willard Wolf uh, wasn't reacting to as, the danger. As sharp as he might have been. Yeah, yeah, to the danger. Although he was shot between the eyes from somebody inside a house, I think that's going to happen under any circumstance. Right. Right. In any event, we do know that um, that's a mystery that has never been solved because nobody could figure out who that guy was. And they looked high and low to figure out who it was. And that description is pretty easy. If you're in the Cleveland Police Department, they have 2,200 officers. Somebody's going to be 6'4 with a blonde right, blue cut. Right. Um, didn't identify him. So the question is, was that an FBI guy? Um, and did they fire some first shots that started everything going? Um, we don't know. All wow. we all we know is that the guy showed up at one of the trials in the basement of the courthouse after Kenny Gibbons testified, and Kenny Gibbons went up to him and said, "I'm glad to see you." And the guy said, "He said I want to talk to you about what happened that night." And the guy said, "I don't know anything about it," and turned and walked the other way. And out of history. And out of history. <laughs> um, we don't even know. We don't know. But it, it raises a big question of what was the FBI's role in this? Secret agent man. Secret. So I think the thing we need to have our listeners understand is that there were three major areas of activity. And as Lou Garcia says, things were happening in each area of activity almost all at once. It was really chaos. This group had spread out into the neighborhood, one group going towards the tow truck, um, one group ending up behind some in the backyard off of Lakeview Avenue, and the other group in front of the Auburndale Apartments. And this is a residential neighborhood. Residential. We're talking about a two-block area where most of this stuff took place. And so we will go back and forth, but things are happening all at once. So I think what would be helpful is for us to listen to Jerry Viola, who was a patrolman back at the time, a second responder. He came right after Gibbons and Wolf, um, and he can describe what happened in his rescue of, um, of of Gibbons after he'd been shot seven times. Here's Jared Iola. And, and, of course, we really didn't know what was going on. We didn't realize that there were 12, 15, 18 guys out there with, with weapons and stuff firing at us. You know, and at that time, we were just armed with the thirty-eight caliber revolvers, and he had six rounds, and then I had a little pouch with six extra rounds, and that was about it. My partner had, at that time gone over to a building that was an old apartment building and he was by the side of the brick um, uh, stairs and stuff like that and he when I looked over I went around the back toward the car I looked over there were two males back there that were firing at us and he was firing back with the shotgun um, which we only carried five rounds and he that went that was gone in no time at all but I ran over there and knelt down by the bushes, and I, again, I fired a couple rounds at these guys. But again, you know, they were kind of far back, and I, I really didn't think I was going to hit anything. I just wanted to let them know we were there, kind of, you know. So then I thought, well, I'll, uh, I'll go back to the car. Now, we carried an extra box of ammunition in the car of 38 caliber and an extra box of uh, shotgun shells. So as I ran back to the car and opened the trunk, I was getting the, going to grab the ammunition, and I could see one of the officers that had gotten out of the car, who I knew personally, uh, Patrolman Wolf, and he got out. He was standing there, sort of crouched, 
had his, his weapon pointed at the two guys, and I heard him holler at them to drop their guns or weapons. That was I, that's the last time I saw him. And uh, anyway, at that same time, when I looked back around the, the car, I saw his partner, Patrolman Gibbons, Kenny Gibbons, come running around the corner. Now Gibbons was, um, he was kind of bent over. He had his weapon in the trigger guard, and he was just holding it like that. And I knew he'd been hurt. You know, I didn't know at that time he'd been shot seven times, but I didn't realize it at the time, you know. So I didn't want to run around the front of the car where these guys were shooting at us. I went around the car the other way to the front and ran, in, ran right to him. Now, he wasn't very far. You know, I mean, I, I'm not, not saying 50 feet or anything like that. You know, he was, but I, I was able, when he came toward me, I was able to, he was kind of bent over. I was able to kind of put him over my shoulder and carry, he was kind of even much taller than I was, you know. So I, I was able to get him over my shoulder. I, again, I didn't want to go around the back of the car where I was exposed and we were both exposed. So I carried him around the side of the car and opened the back door. I got him, got him against the car and I opened the back door and I hollered at my partner, you know, to, we got a badly wounded officer here. So we, he came over to help me. We got in, got Kenny and Kenny Gibbons, the other officer that was wounded. We got him in the back seat of the car. Bob got in the back seat with him. I got in the car. Couldn't go forward because the zone car was blocking our way. So I started backing up. And as I backed up, it was the first time I saw another uniform officer, and that was Patrolman Smith. He was coming down, and we had a motor scooter thing at that time, and he was on a little motor scooter, and he was coming down the sidewalk. Um, I, I backed up that way. I backed around so that the car was forward, and I went back up to Euclid Avenue, and I called the radio, and I said to notify University Hospital, we had a, which is, well, was Lakeside Hospital then. Um, I said, we've got a badly wounded officer, you know, tell him to get ready. So we, we went there, and as we got there, they were waiting for us. This old town's gonna blow away. Look out, Cleveland. The storm is coming through. And it's running right up on you. All right, so what happens after Jerry leaves the scene is this, this whole place becomes just clogged with patrol cars just one after the other showing up um, because they realize this is really, uh, this is real warfare that's going on. And they also realize that the people they're fighting have long rifles and they all have pretty much, you know, uh, 38 revolvers. Pea shooters. Pea shooters, <laughs> yeah. Um, although they're, they're, some of them have shotguns in their cars, but it's really a one-sided fight. That and they So they start showing up and one after the other, they'll, uh, policemen will get shot and injured. One of the main guys, Sam S Levy, Sergeant Levy, ends up getting shot in front of, basically in front of the, the house where the nationalists were. So somebody in that house shot him. Okay. Um, and it's sort of in front of the Lakeview Tavern, which is right next to the house where the nationalists were. So the Lakeview Tavern really is on Lakeview Road mm -hmm. in Avondale. It's At that a, intersection. A, just a, you know, a normal pub type uh, tavern situation, but he ends up in front of that, and uh, he shot badly m multiple times on the ground, and shots still coming at him. Uh, and he kind of crawls under a car partway, where he still gets shot a few times. I mean, these policemen are all watching this happening, you know, 
uh, who have gathered and are now hiding behind the Lakeview Tavern wall. To, they, they've rolled into a combat. Yeah, scene. yeah. And so they don't know what to do because if they go out to try to rescue Levy, they're going to get killed. And um, it's heavy fire that's going on. The thing everybody describes that night is heavy, heavy fire. It's not just like one shot here or one shot there. And we know that inside the Nationalist House, the youngest guy involved in all this, Asu Bey was his name, um, he's he 16 years old. But we know he had an M2 stolen from the military, which is a semi-automatic weapon that they used in Vietnam. You know? Designed to kill. Yeah, designed to kill. Um, and he's probably the guy that, that did the most damage that night oh. from inside that house. So um, that's going on. The, you know, What do we do about Levy in the middle of the road, and how do we get these guys out of this house? At the same time, the, this, this whole thing really kicks off a block away, um, and it is where a tow truck had, by coincidence, come to pick up a stalled Cadillac. Uh, the, the name of the street is Beulah Street. And this Cadillac had been stalled there for several weeks, or had just been abandoned there. Um, and the tow truck comes to pick it up. Well, the tow truck, these guys are not policemen. They're, they're city employees, They're though? city employees, but they have a truck that says Cleveland Police on the side of it in big, bold you know, print, um, big yellow you know, truck. And the guys are in what appears to be policemen's uniforms. But it's city uniform. But they are, they are not policemen, and they don't have weapons. So they, are, they come there to, to tow this thing, and they're setting up to tow when out of nowhere they're attacked. So that's really the first police radio. It's at 8.23 p.m., tow truck in trouble. Um, you know, they're shooting, get here quickly. And one of the guys who gets shot, uh, McMillan is his name, who just recently died mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. gets shot with a shotgun in his back, runs in front of the tow truck, gets shot from the side by somebody who's in the bushes, um, stands up and puts his hands up in the air. Don't you know? Don't fire anymore. I'm I'm not. Uh, I don't have a weapon. And he says that Ahmed Evans comes down and starts shooting at him with his gun, and he turns and runs miraculously. I mean, this guy had been shot like three or four times. Like 90 pellets. Yeah. Yeah. And he turns and runs down 123rd Street, and fortunately some elderly African-American woman brings him into her house, um, and he's shot in the side with a single bullet from what they think is Ahmed Evans' rifle. Right. So Evans had run out of the thing and was down in that corner down there, uh, and just at that time, another police wagon comes up, and he starts shooting at that wagon. And we know it was him who shot at that wagon because the bullets matched up with a or with his rifle that they found in the uh, truck eight months later when they were <laughs> you know in the middle of a trial, and they wow. they found it embedded. They saw the hole. And, yeah, yeah, they found it embedded. Um, so in any event, um, he's shooting there. Um, that whole scene is developing around there. Uh, this, this is on Beulah, where the tow truck is. And that's where the first nationalist is killed. Um, and he is um, someone who is on the ground, and people walk past him. And it seems pretty clear that that guy isn't instantly killed. He's still alive. Some neighbors go out to try to help him, but then leave him. And um, it's clear that he lived for a while there, um, but, but he eventually died. So he's really the first nationalist to die. Okay. 
This is where we should bring in Pete Ventura because Pete, who we've identified earlier, eight months on the force, uh, and um, you know he shows up, tow truck in trouble, he responds, he he parks away from the scene, walks up to the scene, right around where this tow truck is, and this would be a good place for him to kind of add his voice about what happened, what he saw. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. I guess about eight, about seven or eight o'clock, eight o'clock, here we got, you know, shots being fired up at uh, Arbordale, tow truck driver in trouble. I pulled, we pulled up in a car, I pulled my car on the street up on Lakeview and Superior over there. I got out of the car. In fact, they burned my car. If you, there's a picture, it was in a plane dealer. If you looked in a plane dealer, my car was burned. You know, totally, completely burned out on there. I, I got out of the car, and when I got out of the car, I, I went south on, on, on Lakeview. And when I, went, when I went south over there, there was shooting, of, of, shooting all over from the back. There was an apartment building on, on the east side of uh, Lakeview, and there was a, a, a alleyway-like, and there was garages, and there were apartments in the back there. When I went back here, there was shooting coming from the apartments back here all over. I had a shotgun over there. And when I was back here, there were guys coming down running. When they were running on there, they, they came running down the alleyway. They took a shot at me. One took a shot at me. I, he missed me because you're running. You can't hit nobody running with a gun, you know, running. Well, I shot him. He went down over there. You know what I mean? Then I looked. There was a guy coming out of, uh, I think it was 1395 Lakeview. He had two legs out of the window, and he seen me. And when he seen me, he took a shot at me and missed me. But I shot him. He fell out. He was laying on the ground. He, he was gone. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. So that's Pete already on the scene, taking a couple shots at people, and he doesn't even know what happened to him. Okay, so it's a good time to pause and, and add a few notes here for the listener. First of all, the nationalist who was killed down near the tow truck was Sidney Taylor. He went by Malik Ali Bay. Um, secondly, Pete shows up near the tow truck, and at that point in time, the nationalists who had come down Lakeview Avenue and started shooting at the tow truck um, retreated across Lakeview, across the street, went up an alley, and went into the backyards behind some apartment complexes on Lakeview Avenue. That's going to be another area of major activity of those backyards there. So they went back there with their guns, um, and already I think there were already other nationalists who were back there who had spread out through the uh, neighborhood. So people then cross Lakeview and go to one of the apartments there, which is 1395, right, uh, which is actually a, a home, uh, and where a lot of the nationalists had barricaded themselves. So he's going to describe shooting people in windows there and, and various people that he's involved with interacting there. But the important thing about this particular scene is that just before he crosses that street, another group of officers come behind those buildings on Lakeview, and one of them is Louis Galanka, 
who is shot multiple times with a shotgun not far away from himself. So he encounters... A close range. Yeah, he encounters um, some of the nationalists, and he's killed. He's the second policeman killed. He also is one who has a very high blood alcohol rate. Now, he probably... Probably he might have been killed because he wasn't reacting very well at that point. Because mm, right. he literally is shot like almost, you know, dead on. Mm. Um, and so then there's a rescue effort to try to pull him back and um, and a story on that. But that's where Pete Ventura comes in between 1395, which is a house, and 1391, which is an apartment building next to it. That's where the action's happening. Those two buildings right behind them. Pete comes right up in between them and finds himself at one point looking at a chrome-plated revolver that somebody sticks out a window and is shooting down at him. Um, so we'll, let, more him, we'll let him tell yeah, the story. Here's more from Pete. And it was, oh, I was back there. They were shooting coming from the apartments in the back, I off the porches. There were like porches on on apartment buildings in the back here. And when they, I I was shooting at them, you know what I mean, over there. But then another guy come down down the alley over there the same way, you know what I mean. I could hear him running through and shooting. You know what I mean? They were shooting. I stepped out again, and uh, well, that guy went down too. You know what I mean over there. And then there was guys in the back in the back of me shooting. And I, I, I shot at them, but I never had it. I was so much shooting, I never went back to, you know what I mean, to look at them or anything. But later that night, I seen the carrying them away in white sheets, in a white sheet. You know, they had sheets where, you know, you put a body. Who was carrying? I don't know who was carrying. It was dark, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't no policeman. You, you, you understand what I mean? But they were carrying them north towards Superior Avenue down there. Then there was another guy. There was a, at, at the house there, if you look at a house, there's like a half window in a house, in a kitchen. And what happened, he was shooting at us. He was shooting at me and shooting at him he, out the window. You know what I mean? He had a, a, a chrome pistol on there, automatic over there. So what happened is I snuck up against, there's some bushes, I snuck up against a, a, a house over there. And here, here was the window, the half window, it was only half window there. I got right up against the house and I had my shotgun out over there and I was right against the, the house. The dummy stuck his hand out and shot down at me and the bullets hit right here, over here. But what happened, I had the shotgun, you know what I mean, be between the building. The dummy stuck his head out and looked down at me. When he looked down at me, all I did was hit the trigger, you know what I mean? And I, boo, he went inside, boo, you know, in a window. So as we said, against all of this chaos, um, the battle was still raging down near where the Nationalist headquarters was on Auburndale. In fact, it was ten intensifying. You've got Levy out in the street. You've got a lot of people trying to figure out how to save him. Um, and at that point, another group of uh, policemen come down Auburndale from the other side of it not from the Lakeview side, but from Euclid Avenue. They come down Auburndale, um, and they're going to try to attack from that side of the house. So if you were looking straight at the house where the nationalists were, Levy is on the right side in, the, in front of the under Lakeview Tavern, a under a car. Um, and on the left side is where these, this new group is trying to come from. Um, that group includes a uh, lieutenant named Leroy Jones, 
uh, he had come with several people, and he begins to creep up towards the nationalist home, where the home is, where they are, and he gets shot. And he gets shot multiple times, uh, falls essentially where he is, and he will be the third of the policemen to die uh, that night. But he's still alive for a while, and so there are rescue efforts now to try to get him. And several of the officers try to rescue him, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But that creates another rescue scene. And they're all pinned down because Asu Bey, who's 16 years old, is with like one or two other guys holding everybody down. With an M2, just shooting, shooting, shooting. Yeah. Yeah. So back to Levy, who's semi under the car, there's one, there there are a lot of heroes on this night from the police side of things. Um, But one of them is uh, Thomas Smith, who shows up on a police scooter, a, a motorcycle. And um, he's looking at Levy in the street, and they're all, it's just anguish for them. You know, this poor guy is still alive and he's being shot at, and they don't know how to get to him. He does a reconnoitering, if that's a word, um, <laughs> all the way around. He, he takes almost 45 minutes. I mean, this guy was in the street for an hour and a half. Oof. And so Thomas is trying to figure out a way to get to him. Thomas Smith, he goes to the other side of, uh, he goes down Lakeview and on the other side of the scene. And of all things, gets attacked by a dog, um, <laughs> and uh, and then turns around and comes all the way back, and then he can't take it anymore. And he goes out and tries to, to lift him up and what what they call a fireman's grip or hold or whatever it mm-hmm. is, and he gets shot. Oh. And he's originally shot like in his shoulder, but then one grazes across the back of his neck, which essentially destroys his uh, spinal cord. Oh. And he, he can't move then at that point. He falls to the ground. He can't. He's having trouble breathing. Um, and somebody else comes out to try to rescue him and get shot. So it's just this one thing after another is happening, and it's just a brutal scene because there are a lot of these police are in the streets and they're still being shot at, helpless. Um, so and it's in the span of a matter of, of minutes, really. We're not even an hour. At yeah, this I mean, it's an, uh, yeah. Another thing to keep in mind: eight twenty-three is the first tow truck in trouble. Uh, sundown is nine o'clock. So um, by the time you get to about nine o'clock, when a lot of this activity has already taken place, um, it's starting to get dark, and that is a blessing for everybody because um, it is. It things slow down a little bit with the darkness. And the police start shooting out the, the street lights so that the nationalists won't be able to see who they're shooting at and, you know, what what's going on and where people are coming from and things like that. And taping their white helmets with black duct tape so oh, yeah. that they don't stand out and glow. That's right. That's yep. right. That's right. So that's all going on. We've got three policemen dead. And in going back to where 1395 was, where Pete Ventura was shooting people, um, in the backyard, two other nationalists are shot and killed. Bernard Donald is one of them, and the other is uh, Leroy Williams. And um, they're both pretty badly shot up behind 1395, this home, mm-hmm. which was owned by a pastor at the time. Uh, and his family was in it and had to be rescued mm. partway through. Um, there were some just amazingly harrowing scenes that night. Um, so at any rate, these guys are shot in the backyard there. There's another guy, Lathan Donald, who is um, Nandu uh, L. Uh, his brother, Bernard Donald, is the other one of the other nationalists killed, uh, Nandu Bay. 
uh, Lathan is shot up, but he survives, and he will survive this and go on trial. It'll be the second of two trials. He was Ahmed's uh, lieutenant, kind oh. of his chief lieutenant, okay. a guy who's about 18, 19 years old. Um, so in any event, that's all happening, and there are snipers within 1395 who are keeping all the police pinned down, and that eventually um, they throw flares into the house and start. it starts to burn down. The curtains catch fire, and it starts to burn down. And, and who's right there? Well, Pete Ventura, <laughs> but not until Pete had left that part of the scene, gone back to Auburndale, and crawled on his belly to try to recover Willard Wolf, who was dead in the front yard with the, the shot between the eyes. Um, and he crawls through all this fire that's going on to get him, and another guy comes behind him, and they will, uh, Pete will bring uh, Willard Wolf out. He's dead. They take him to a hospital, but he's he's dead at that point. And there's another guy who's dead in the front yard. His name is James Chapman. He's a young man, 20 years old, maybe somewhere around there, maybe a little bit more, but um, he had been asked by some of the people who were with Leroy Jones, after Leroy Jones went down, to if they could help you know, go rescue Jones. Um, Chapman had a car. He and his wife had just been to the grocery store, and they stopped on the way back and were stopped because of the, the shooting. And he volunteers. According, There are different sides to this story, but mm-hmm. one side is he volunteers to get his car uh, because they figure if it's an African-American driving, it won't be sh- shot at, and the police could be in the back seat and recover Leroy Jones, who's, who's still alive and is out in front of the house. They begin to do that rescue, and the moment they get out there, it doesn't matter who's driving the car. They get shot at. Chapman gets out, apparently, to go try to rescue Willard Wolf. One side of the story tells that, and he gets shot and killed. Right there in the same yard. Another uh, way that this is portrayed and has been debated hotly is that he is shot by policemen and maybe even executed by policemen. Mm. Um, So that remains a mystery, and we don't have enough time in this podcast to mm. solve the mystery. I write about it in, at length in the book, but it, yeah. it is the other guy that they recover, but they take his body, and they set it in front of the Lakeview Tavern. So there's a dead body in front of the Lakeview Tavern, and Dick Peary, who we're going to hear from, um, sees that body when he shows up to the scene. Um, in any event, um, what's going on in the... Um, Lakeview Tavern is the patrons there have all been moved into the basement by originally by some police who show up and tell them to go to the basement. Then another group of policemen show up and they think that there's nationalists in the basement. So they start sending tear gas and start shooting. And it's a wild scene. Uh, One guy gets badly shot up uh, who's just trying to help. Uh, And then they're all routed out of there and taken to, to, to jail, but badly abused by the police. It was just... There was extreme anger that night, uh, you know, and retaliation was kind of in the air. So that's all going on. And Pete Ventura, after rescuing Wolf's body, um, goes into the Lakeview Tavern, looks around, comes back out, and goes back down to 1395 where this house is starting to burn and barrels through the front window of it um, and is looking around, sees the guy in the kitchen who he had shot with the, uh, who came out the side window, and sees him with blood around his head in the kitchen. Then he tries to go upstairs where there are snipers, but it's the stairs have been barricaded with mattresses, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this, he couldn't go up, so but he, they couldn't come down. Yeah, right, exactly. 
So he eventually leaves. But let's listen to him describe that part of the scene. Here's Pete Ventura again. Then there was a shooting coming from uh, on the other side of uh, Lakeview there. And when I went over there, there were policemen that were pinned down on the street there. And they, there was a house that was later, it was a pastor's house over there, you know, and it, it was, uh, uh, they had the, he had the policeman pinned down and there was a big, there was a door in the front and there was a big picture window in there. And what happened is, I, I, I ran and I went through the window and I had tear gas and there was tear gas in there and it would start setting the house on fire, tear gas, and uh, it was real bad. I, I went in the house and those guys that were pinning down the policemen from, they were up on the second floor. And I looked, there was a stairway going up, but I couldn't get up the stairway because they had mattresses and, and bed springs blocking the hallway, you know what I mean? So I went in, in the kitchen over there where at that window was, where that guy, you know, where I told him I shot, I seen him laying there, I seen the gun laying there, I never touched anything on there, and it was on fire, and then I got out, you know, ran out over there, and I could hear the people inside screaming, you know what I mean, the house, was, they couldn't get out, you know because what I mean, because the mattresses and the, and the bed springs and that were in a, in a hallway. But these were people that were firing at Oh, the they, they were the one that had the p policeman pinned down over there, you know what I mean? They were shooting down, that's, that's why I went in the house, you know, because they had the policemen pinned down. And there's other policemen that were there that uh, come up to me and later on and thank me for, you know what I mean, for, you know, do, doing it because, Getting you know, they were shooting down uh, from the second floor, they had good, you know, good views of everything. So Pete has come running out of this burning house. What about the nationalists that were in the backyard? Okay, so we know that there were three of them that had been shot pretty badly in the backyard, and there, there's a lot to get into how they were shot, but police officers were battling with them, and they were all down, and they were fairly close to 1395, which now is burning to the ground. Uh, and so let me just read, I think the easiest way to read this paragraph from the book to describe what happened. In the backyard, a grisly scene was unfolding. The nationalists who had been shot behind the house apparently were still alive when the house caught fire. As the house began to burn, they were close enough that they began to be incinerated. The fact that they were still alive was proven by autopsies of Bernard Donald, Nandu Bay, and Sidney Taylor, Malik Ali Bay, both of whom had carbon monoxide in their blood, a sign that they had inhaled smoke, yet both had kill shots to their heads. One conclusion seems inescapable. These men were shot in the head after the fire in the house was well underway. The chief forensic pathologist from Allegheny County confirmed that neither would have survived their massive head wounds for even seconds and that carbon monoxide in the blood only happens if someone is still breathing. Quote, the body does not take up carbon monoxide after death, close quote, he testified. So although they were shot and wounded, they might have lived if they hadn't had a coup de gras. Yeah, coup de gras, and it seems pretty apparent that they were also starting to incinerate behind there. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's just as grisly a scene as you're going to get. And so, but it also gives you an idea of the, the just the raw brutality of what happened in these two short hours, you know, after eight twenty-three in the evening. And it also gives you an idea of why, uh, and we'll talk about this in the next podcast why Stokes decided to get all white policemen out of the area 
the next day. Very so, controversial. Very, and we'll come back to that. But, you know, retribution was in the air. And, you know, from a human perspective, it's hard to blame people who have been attacked, who feel, you know, they're, no pun intended, their blood is up. And it is getting to be extremely brutal back there. Um, all around. I mean, everybody turned into, this is a war scene. It was yeah. guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Um, so um, at this point, Dick Peary shows up. Uh, and the, the fighting had pretty much died down by the time he shows up. Dick is a guy who had only been working for the Column Post, which is the African-American uh, newspaper, for about eight months, I think is what he says. A rookie, almost like Pete Ventura, about exactly. eight months. Exactly, yeah. and he bravely comes to the scene. A young man, just a new reporter, he thinks he needs to be there, and he will tell you what he witnessed that night, including um, what we now know is the body of James Chapman in front of the Lakeview Tavern, his conclusions from all that. So this is Dick Perry. Anyway, I uh, circled around uh, through East Cleveland and came down to Euclid and Lakeview and parked my car and walked uh, north on Lakeview to the site where the shootout had taken place. And you think this was midnight or 1 a.m.? No, no, no. This, this was... Uh, it had just gotten dark, so okay. I guess it was, you know, what, 9, 9.30, okay. 10 o'clock. Okay. Yeah. And, and just uh, for everybody listening to this, when you talk about driving around, you went towards what would everybody in Cleveland would know would be Lakeview Cemetery, you know, that, yes. that area, and then you're moving north on Lakeview itself mm-hmm. towards Superior. So in Auburndale is where the yes. shootout was really happening. Yes. I walked under uh, the railroad bridge, and I was there at the shootout area, and uh place was uh, full of police. They were milling around. By the time I got there, the shooting had stopped. I did not witness the actual, uh, you know, people getting hit. Did you, did you have a press card that identified you as press or anything of that? I mean, yes, were you I, worried I, these guys were going to arrest you? Or Well, I, I, uh, I had a camera hanging around my neck. And, <laughs> you know, so that, <laughs> and not a gun around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, that there was no question I was a reporter, and I think I might even had a tie on. I don't know, yeah. a jacket and tie, I don't remember. But uh, there was no question I was a reporter, and uh, I certainly wasn't being hostile toward anybody. <laughs> but uh, what I saw, the, the police were moving around back and forth, and at the, at the Lakeview Tavern was right on the corner of Auburndale and Lakeview, and I saw a body lying on the sidewalk. The blood was congealed. It had been there for a long time. And I asked uh, a policeman, who is that lying there? And they thought, it's just one of the militants. And then uh, I saw a group of policemen go into and, and the... And another thing, for, for people mm-hmm. listening, that was James Chapman's body. It turned out we learned it was James Chapman, whom police said had been shot by the militants as he tried to rescue a policeman. Right, and it, it's a very controversial st- part of this story. James Chapman, a young African-American father of, I think, two young mm-hmm. kids. And the story from the police side is that he volunteered to help them rescue one of the policemen who was down. Yes. And that he himself then got killed and was dragged in front of the uh, 
the, the Lakeview, um, or what was it called, the Tavern. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. where you saw him. That you saw that's where his I body. saw him. Yeah. I saw. Dragged by who? Well, the police have one person who said that they pulled him out. Okay. But there's a lot of stories that mm -hmm. circulate about this, and I don't know that it's been affirmatively established mm -hmm. for sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, um... Anyway, his body was lying there. The police were just stepping over it casually like it was, uh, you know, debris in their way or something. And, uh, and by the way, the people who were taken out of the Lakeview Tavern later by police mm -hmm. um, said they had to step over that body. Yes, yeah, the body was almost in the doorway. And uh, it lay there for a very long time, all the time I was at the scene. And then I saw a group of policemen go into the tavern finally, and they came out with, uh, turned out the patrons who had gone down the basement when the shooting started and, and remained huddled there until the police came in. And one of the patrons was shot as the, by the police as they brought them out. They were being handled very roughly like they were all murder suspects practically, but, uh, and they were all taken to jail. Yeah, they stepped over the body as it came out. So, Jim, what happened to Ahmed Evans? Well, we know from what I said earlier that he was shooting at uh, the people in that uh, GMC, you know, police wagon that comes by mm -hmm. near where the tow truck was. He was down in that vicinity. Right. There's, there are a couple other witnesses that identify him being in that vicinity. He claims that his M1, which he had, and it bought that day, um, jammed, and that he couldn't unjam it. He goes to a house that's, that fronts on Lakeview Avenue, across the street from where that burning house would be. But this is early in the—this is probably still in daylight. Okay. And that house is owned by a guy named Turpin, T-U-R-P-I-N, who actually was an African-American guy, but he was a police— uh, officer at the workhouse, the Cleveland workhouse. He actually knew Evans, not only as a neighbor, but from time he spent in the workhouse. Um, Evans comes and bangs on his side door, let me in, let me in. Uh, Turpin's on the second floor with his kids. The shooting has already started. He's got him on the floor. You're not coming in here. He bashes in the door and then goes up to his second story, bangs on the door, let me in. No, I'm not going to let you in. He opens the attic door and walks up into the attic. So this guy is in his apartment with Ahmed Evans. You can hear him walking up the stairs. And he will spend the rest of the shootout in that attic, which is right across the street from the 1395 that will burn to the ground, so he can see everything unfolding. His part of the story is that he goes down and tells Turpin multiple times that he wants to surrender, to stop everything. Um, Turpin confirms that, although the police were very suspicious of Turpin being scared um, that it, there was going to be retribution against him when he testified because True. he gave one story when he first talked to the police and it morphed into another one, morphed into a third one by the time he testified. Maybe, I, I don't know, but his story is consistent with Evans that, they, that Turpin tried to call the police, and of course it's havoc that night trying to get anybody's attention, and told them multiple times that Evans was in his house and wanted to surrender. True or not, we don't. It, it's not really clear. We can't really prove it. Let's assume it's true for uh, argument's sake. Um, at some point later that night, when everything had, when the house across the street was burned into the ground, um, Turpin goes out to his front 
porch on the second story and yells to the police, I'm, I've got to, I got, I'm at Evans at my house. He wants to give himself up, but he only give himself up to a black officer. That's his story. That's the story that Evans tells. And, but Pete Ventura has a different view of that story. Yeah, the officer that he was yelling at yeah. was, once again, Pete Ventura. Yeah, so let's hear what he has to say. Ahmed Evans giving himself up. You know, they said they gave him up to a policeman out there. Well, I come down the street and a black man come out and he says, there's a black man in the back here who wants to give himself up to a black policeman. I says, he'll give himself up to a white policeman. I go back here, Ahmed Evans is standing in front of this apartment building. He's got a carbine in front of him. I'll tell you what he was wearing. He was there with uh, tongs, no shirt, and he had these uh, Jamaican pants on. On there, you know what I mean? You, he said, you white honky. I won't say that on TV. You know, he said, you, you white honky. You, he says, if my gun went to jam, he says, I'd, I'd have killed you, more of you. You know what I mean? That's what he said. The thing is, I, I said, listen here. I said, you were in a paratroopers. He was in a, in a. I said, they teach you blindfolded how to unjam a gun. That was a carbine. You know what I mean? I said, you're just afraid. That's what it was. You never wanted to get shot. You know, and I said, let's go. So I took him out. Other policemen did take him and arrest him, I guess. But I brought him out from the back of the building, you know, from the building on there. That, I'll swear to that. You know what you I mean? You were the first man that had contact. I was the first man that had contact with him. Now, the, the other policemen say, well, they made the arrest on him. But I was the first one that man, uh, made contact with him. And the first thing he says is, if gun had in jail? Right. If the gun had in jail, I'd kill more of you white honkies. You know what I mean? That's, that's what he said to me. So let me just conclude this portion, this segment, by reading uh, a little bit from the book about what happens uh, to Evans after he's put in custody. Evans was handcuffed and walked out to a shot-up zone car where Amos Floyd, the African-American vice cop who had shepherded the children out of 1391, was sitting. Amos Floyd had helped uh, a young family get out of the apartment complex next to the house that was burning. Floyd and the arresting officers all testified that Evans was read his Miranda rights. I know my rights better than you do, Evans told one of the officers. After the white officers left, Floyd turned around and asked Evans, who was in the back seat of his cruiser, what are you accomplishing by this? Quote, this is just the beginning, close quote, Evans replied, and then fell silent, watching the house burn across the street. When we come to our next podcast, we will get into Evan's confession, the investigation and the trial, and um, the immediate aftermath of this shootout, Uh, but uh, itself very dramatic. The story does not end with the silence of the guns. There is more to come in part five. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Ballots and Bullets podcast is a WKYC production. Our editor is Raquel Hagman. Interviews were recorded in Cleveland by Mike Leonard and Raquel Hagman, in Tampa by Angela Clooney, and in Atlanta by Bliss Savage. Musical selections for this episode include Time is Tight by Booker T and the MGs, Secret Agent Man by Johnny Rivers, Don't Take Your Guns to Town by Johnny Cash, Look Out Cleveland by The Band, Machine Gun by Jimi Hendrix, Armenia City in the Sky, and the sunrise by the who and we concluded with a live version of can't find my way home featuring steve winwood and eric clapton be 
sure to pick up a copy of Jim Robinault's book, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland.